Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with actress Erica Rosenbaum. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for having me. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, say who you are, what you're, what you're doing, what you're about. All right. Um, well, I'm Erica, and I'm an actress and a photographer and an activist, and I am um, married to a super fella named Matt, and I have four beautiful children, Jack, Harriet, Matilda, and Beatrice. So I'm a busy mum and um and uh, four? Four, yeah. I didn't know you had four. Oh yeah. <laughs> Don't I look tired? <laughs> I just I had no idea. That's you you've been busy. Like, yes. Yeah, so. yeah, we're very busy. So when the Bible said be fruitful and multiply, you took that shit. Oh yeah, literally. I read all that. Yeah, I was yeah, like, like, yes. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. So you're bit four kids. Yeah. Yeah, I have four kids, and uh, and I'm really lucky because when I when I leave my kids, you know, they're all really little, and I wanted to be around a lot while they were little. But when I leave, I get to do a job I really love, and I'm super lucky I get to do that. So I really I feel like I I do get to do it all. You know, like Liz Lemon from Thirty Rock. She's like, I just want to have it all. Well, <laughs> I kind of do. I don't have it all at once, but I do yeah. get to do it all. So how do you? Because you know, in the popular mind, when we think about kind of actors they sort of have all the i mean if they're really making tons of money they have all these like you know like brad and angela they have all these like nannies that look after their kids so how do you do a job that requires you to be away uh-huh. a well, lot you just you said it. it you're talking about the actors that make a lot of money <laughs> now, i'm not one of those i am like I'm lucky to get to do the job, but I'm not making a living wage doing it at this point in time. I mean, also, I have a baby. I have a one-year-old. She's still nursing. So, um, you know, I started having babies in my late 20s, and now I'm I'm in my late 30s, and um, I've had like 10 years of breastfeeding. So I haven't done a lot of long shoots. I haven't I haven't been um, up for those great parts yet. Um, but I'm hoping now that I've had my family and that all my kids are getting, you know, to towards independence and my little baby is going to be, you know, off the boob eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Breast, I should say. Um, that I'll be able to do a little more work. I'll be able to um, 
well, way more to have that opportunity, you know. Um, yeah. And luckily, there's there's more and more great roles for women. I think it's not not enough, of course, but there are more, and there's more avenues for um, for the work. I think there's more streaming. There's online stuff. Um, uh, you know, I started in video games in my 30s. That was brand new. So I think all those Doing great what roles. In video games. Acting. Really? Yeah, yeah. Acting is a huge industry in in Montreal, in Canada. And, no, I know um, it is. I just I didn't know what acting do you do in video games. Um, well, a, a lot of the cinematics at the beginning of games and in the breaks to to tell the story of the game that you're playing, um, like Far Cry, and um, well, my game is called Outlast. Um, that that's done with live actors. So we do the we do the mo the motion capture. Um, we do the voice. And um, my character, Lynn, um, Lynn Langerman, actually looks a lot like me. And uh, she, she, it's um, Outlast is a first-person game, um, so the, the player is the character, and I play his wife or her, you know, whoever's playing. I'm, I'm the wife, and so, we, you know, we crash a helicopter and we battle these horrible cult people. And <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's very spooky. It's not for kids, that game. Um, but yeah, actors get get hired to to be to be these these characters, and so you know it's really physical and fun, like theater. Um, but it's filmy because it's on camera, and and yeah, it's very cool. It's it's really really fun, and and it's a growing industry because more and more, if you're not using a real actor, it's not as interesting. People aren't committed. They don't they don't engage with the characters in the same way. So it's it's great for us in Montreal because it's sort of added to this third tier to our our possibilities that is you know? so that is so fascinating i didn't know about that mm -hmm. at all like i thought i thought i knew it was going on with that but i know that one of my the mother of one of my my younger son's friends really close friends she's an agent and she's told me on numerous occasions that there's so much business right now there's so many movies being shot and so many so much happening right now in montreal mm -hmm. for various reasons partially because it's it's cheaper than a lot of locations also because it can plausibly look like New York or Chicago or other places. Or Europe. <laughs> or Europe. Yeah. Um, also because we have this really incredible concentration of talent, mm -hmm. like people who can do special effects and who can do a lot of the technical stuff. Yeah. But she said one of the things that she's noticed that's changed in the industry in the last couple of years is so much business coming into Montreal, but they don't have enough actors in the local area who can act, who can speak in an English that is not heavily, heavily accented. Mm. And so they end up having to ship people in from the States or from like from the rest of Canada because they don't have enough local talent. Mm -hmm. And I said, that is so weird because I have like, you know, I've had like lots and lots of former students who wanted to get into acting? Yeah, and they went to they went to California. Yeah, or they went to New York, or they went to Toronto or Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Like they should come back. <laughs> yeah, no, well, there's a perception thing too, where um, 
uh, I think outside producers think that the center for talent in Canada is Toronto. And so if you're going to get a great actor, you have to go to Toronto or Vancouver where there's a lot of um, series being shot. And so they'll often go outside of the city thinking that they need to. But um, our our local casting directors do a really good job of trying to push local talent. And uh, they really fight for us um, in a very real way. But, you know, at the end of the day, they do have to serve the production. And so they they walk a fine line like the rest of us. But, yeah, many of us who do work um, in a lot of American um, productions have had to work on our accents. So I'll be very careful when we're talking about, uh, when we're talking about, you know, like we, we have to, really make sure we're trying to emphasize that American twang, which takes some focus, but it, it, you can do it. And there is training you can do to, to sort of get the Canadian out. Out. <laughs> but yeah, if you don't pay attention, it, it'll catch up with you. But what I've found, I mean, I can't really hear it in your voice, but I lived in the States for, for years. And one thing Americans would always say to me when they found out I was... Canadian, they would say, "You don't sound Canadian." You don't sound Canadian at no. all. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, I'm from, I'm from Montreal, and it's, it's different. It's a whole other you, thing." Um, yeah, it's just you know, if you're growing up here, most of the people you're speaking to, English is their second or third language, so you have to speak really, really clearly, yeah. <laughs> or else people don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. So we don't have. Uh, I've been told. I don't know because nobody can hear their own accent, or mm-hmm. at least I can't. Uh, but I was told very often in the States, and then I heard the same thing in Southeast Asia, in Singapore and other places, they said, you don't have a very strong um, accent. And not in the sense, obviously everybody has an accent, but you don't have an accent in the sense that... It doesn't scream Canadian. It doesn't scream Canadian. Yeah, yeah that was... And your accent doesn't scream Canadian to me either. I've practiced. Oh, really? Yeah. This is just the way I talk all the time in uh-huh. English. So right. I, I I haven't practiced. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder there's something that I, I definitely was like, I gotta ask her about this. John Ralston Saul, the Canadian philosopher, he talks in his book, uh, well he's talked about this in a number of them, but in Reflections of a Siamese Twin, he talks about this thing he calls like the colonial mindset. And he says that um Sort of, and you see this all over the world, but he says in Canada, the way it manifests itself is that Canadians have this colonial insecurity. And so our, our local talent, whether it be in acting or in writing or in filmmaking or pretty much anything, that you have to go to the mother country and get legitim- legitimized totally. there. In, and then you come back. And so, for instance, you know, I remember reading this and I immediately thought of a friend of mine who actually uh, grew up in the same sort of area that you grew up in. But her dad was making films for the NFB for years and was like winning awards and was, you know, he was making really amazing stuff, but he still was having a really hard time like raising money for projects. And he still wasn't getting like a lot of respect. And he's like, I don't understand what's going on. I've been like putting out great work for a while. And then somebody sort of pulled him aside and said, like, all right, I'm going to tell you what's up. Go down to California. Go to L.A. Make one movie down there. It can be, like, total garbage, total crap. Just make, like, one movie down there. Then come back. Every door will open for you in Canada because you've been legitimized by the mother country. And now, and so John Wilson Saul says, like, back in the day, 
it, the colonial relationship was with Britain. And then at some point, and so in order to get respect, for instance, as like an academic, you had to go to like Oxford or Cambridge sure. or Edinburgh. But then that like – And we had to go do Shakespeare. Yeah. And go like, and then, But then at a certain point, it like transferred to the States. And so yeah. you had to go down to like Harvard or Yale or Princeton to get like legitimized. And then you'd come back bathed in glory mm-hmm. to like the colonies, right? Sure. This – I remember reading that and I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds like very, very true – but I feel like it's it's less true in Quebec. I'm just wondering, like, for you, what do you think? What do you think about that? Is that? I I think that's totally true for an Anglo actor in Quebec because Quebec is its own thing. Uh, it, it, I mean, you can be a huge star in Quebec um, if you're in, if you're working in French because it's it's its own nation and you have a following and there's shows that are just for you and they use the same people and they're they're huge celebrities and. I would not recognize them if they sat down in the makeup chair next to me because I'm, you know, I'm not an audience of of French television in that way. Um, only because I, you know, there's there's so much to take in in English that my friends are working on and that that I would like to work on, and, and I can only work in English because the French is not available to me. I've had to really bang on doors to get into French. So that's like a very insular system. And um, and I have a bit of an accent when I speak French. I sound Anglophone, but I mean, Quebecois series, you would think that there would be Anglophones because there are Anglophones. Mm-hmm. In Quebec, but but um, it, it's sort of difficult to cross over. So, it, you know, for, 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 Quebec, for Quebec, if you're in French, then then you're set. You can you can rise in that industry. But also it's limited because, you know, you have you have a Quebecois accent. You're not necessarily going to transition transition to France and many many of those actors if they want to go bigger or go global they'll go and try to try it on the English side which I think is a huge challenge and my hat's off to them for pulling it off you know Karine mm-hmm. Van Asse, uh, se- you know several have done v- that very successfully Caroline de- Devernet mm-hmm. um, sorry I keep hitting this thing um, <laughs> I talk with my hands yeah. <laughs> um, but in English I really do think that that big giant head mentality um, you do you do are you get legitimized somehow by going and paying your dues in Los Angeles, which is what I did, and and Toronto to a certain degree, I think. Um, but I, you know, I went out to to LA as a young actor because that's what How old? you did. I was I was nineteen the first time I went, but I um, I oh went God, just sort of get the lay of the land. Um, I went a couple of times. You know, I traveled with a friend once, and I went to just, just to look around. And explore. Like I was really just trying to figure out if I was going to be able to do business there. And I, you know, I, the first few times that I went, I didn't have an agent. I, I went to sort of get the lay of the land because um, I had, I had no leads. You know, I'm, I'm from Ormstown. I'm, I'm a small town girl. I had no You're money. Country girl. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't city savvy, let alone Los Angeles savvy. But um, you know, I was training with a great teacher um, and. Uh, she's from the the neighborhood playhouse in New York City, and she and she was just you know saying if you're going to do it, just jump in, jump in with both feet and do it now. Don't wait. Uh, you know it happens all the time that people go out there on a hope and a dream, and and it works. They meet the right people and they fall into the right crowd, or they they have one audition and they get and they get that that part. And that's you know that's what you're supposed to do when you're young. You're supposed to take chances, and especially mm-hmm. if you're a young artist in a very like unlikely pursuit of a dream. Uh, so I did. I just went out there and I, I did it. And and really, I I did feel like when I came home, I, I was given a certain amount of um, 
uh, respect. <laughs> um, I was, uh, you know, I felt like I had um, gotten my chops a little bit because I had auditioned in Los Angeles. You know, I, I did eventually get an agent out there. I would go down for pilot season like a lot of young actors do. And, um, and I'd audition... Pilot season? Pilot season, yes. Oh, God, this is hilarious. I've never heard of this before. You so it's like okay. hunting season? Like uh, Very much. It feels very much like hunting season, but you are the deer. Um, so pilot season is when all of these new shows are um, given a shot. So new new productions go into, um, into uh, a sort of a frenzied casting and then production run. Um, and so, like, when I was down there... I um I would I would be sent out to audition very unlikely auditions because I had no um I had no working papers but what they do often is that they will take a chance on new talent for a pilot because it's a show that has not been picked up yet so it hasn't been purchased by the the network so some some often young um creator um says you know what I have this great idea for a show it's about um, it's about a group of young friends and they, uh, they, they're all living together and they hang out at this, this place in New York City and I've got, um, I've got this person attached and then I'm going to fill the cast and some, somebody at NBC says, yeah, you can, uh, you can have $100,000 to make a pilot. So they make a half-hour pilot and then they try, to, they try to sell it basically to the network and then when, once they get funding, then they can make eight eight episodes or whatever and and then that that's how a show is born often and so new talent goes down for pilot season because it's it's like the window opens for new people to get a shot so even without papers if the if the studio can prove that like let's say paramount says look this is the only girl for the job erica she can ride horses she can dance she does ballet we can't find anybody this has to be the girl then they will fly you to Tijuana to have you re-enter the states with working papers, so that you can work on this one thing. It's a whole, it's a whole system that has allowed. It's like a well-oiled machine. It, They've got it all set it up. It is, and so you go down knowing it's almost impossible, but it happens. Like it's happened for my friends. It's happened, and you think, why not me? Like if you're if you're bothering to go down there, it's because you believe you could do it, and you you can see yourself among these actors. And I and I really felt, and I, I still do feel like there's room for me in those long shot scenarios where, why not me? You know, I I am interesting and I and I am funny and weird and and I think I'm watchable and so I you know I did that. I went down for pilot season. I'm so, I'm so surprised you've never heard of that. So, I've never heard so of yeah, it. Yeah, pilot is the first it's the first show that that was used as a tool to sell the show itself. So that's how Friends got made. That's how ER got made. They made a pilot. No, I know what pilots are. Yeah, so I've, pilot I've just never heard of pilot yeah. season. So like that, January that is fascinating to, me. to April-ish is pilot season. And so you're in Los Angeles. You're in the Los Angeles for all the awards season. It's a very weird time, but it's really fun. I mean, if you have the right friends and if you're falling into the right crowd. What's it like being 19 in L.A. if you're from, like, Ormstown, which I know it's a you know, for <laughs> listeners who are listening, you know, elsewhere in in the world, this is a very small town. Like Ormstown, girls and boys get chewed up by Montreal. Okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. And <laughs> um, so I can't imagine being from Ormstown in LA. Mm -hmm. And that's just foolish, really. I mean, how did did you have like family there? Did you have friends? Like did you have any sort of home base? Like mm -hmm. where you can be like safe? <laughs> <laughs> I did, actually. 
Um, and I actually didn't discover my family there until I, I had already been there once or twice. Um, but my grandfather connected with family that he had discovered very late in life. And um, he was in his 80s when he rediscovered this half of the family. And so our American half of the family, they dropped the Jewy part of our name. So they're just Rose. So when they came into <laughs> Ellis Island, they just stuck with Rose. So all the Americans in my family, or well, this section of the Americans in my family, they, their last name is Rose. And my grandfather reached out to this woman he hadn't seen in, you know, 60 years and said, are you my cousin that came on a elephant ride with me at this something 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 and they they hadn't seen each other since they were teenagers and uh, and they connected in their 80s and so when i was wow. going down there for the second or third time i i had been staying with a friend i have several friends who are actors and that were doing the same thing as me but who were a couple steps ahead <laughs> and uh and so i would sleep on couches and such but my um my grandfather said reach out to these cousins so i spent all kinds of time with these octogenarians from my family and we and we we reconnected our two halves of the family and i i got to know them and their children and they you know they all came to my wedding years later and it really did reconnect the canadian and american branches of this family it was really special and and, you know and, and i I got to spend time with them in the last decade of their life. You know, I lost my cousin Nina, who, even though she was in her 80s, was like a like a dear um, aunt to me. She was technically my cousin, but we spent a ton of time together. And they, you know, they um, her brother lived in Beverly Wood, and I stayed with him for a few years on in pilot season. And and she lived in Laguna Beach, and I would go down in, on weekends and. It was really funny. Like I had this beautiful intergenerational um, living experience with them, and it was a really, really special part of my living there. And, that's, and that's you know, I wild. would never have found them if if I hadn't have taken the chance to go. And my grandfather hadn't have said, "Hey, give these strangers a call." And I mean, it it's really um, it, it was a rare gift and a yeah. surprise. <laughs> well, I bet that that really kind of made it a different experience because mm-hmm. I've heard so many negative experiences like from friends from family members from people from Montreal I remember the the Montreal artist Grimes like she's you know had toured around all over the world her she was getting like really really popular she was doing really really well and then she moved to LA and she just like absolutely hated it I was like she really like I, I heard her in this this podcast conversation about a couple months ago, and she was just talking about. It. She goes, "I've never had such negative experiences like anywhere, like I New York, uh, anywhere in Europe." Because she kind of she's from Vancouver, but she went to McGill, and she kind of became Grimes here, mm. like in in Myland and stuff like that. And she, and she said in L.A., she said anytime she would meet people. And she would think that somebody was like a friend and they were just like hanging out and then they would like repeat stuff that she said in confidence, like on social media and they would like, people would fill it. She just, all these like, she just thought it was a, a very kind of toxic environment. And uh, anyway, and I've heard that from so many different people. Yeah. Well, it is that too. And I did have my fair share of that. Um um, but, uh, you know, on the rosy side, I, I got to connect with family and I do have several talented friends out there and, you know, I love to hike and surf and I spent a lot of time outside. And so there was all that, 
But then there was also the the icky part, the um, the parties where you think you're having fun, but anyone you're talking to is really looking over your shoulder to see who else is coming in. You know, this is yeah, this is what I've heard. Like so much, they, they said yeah. everybody you meet is immediately sort of calculating. Yeah, like what can you do for me? Totally. And are how much power do you have? Mm-hmm. Or how much access to power do you have? And they're just like sort of like almost like they have like a digital readout. Yeah. Like on their visual screen looking at. Totally. <laughs> and they're checking boxes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're categorizing you and trying to and, – and they're weighing things. And then they sort of swipe you left or right. And then that's <laughs> – and then that's where you land. And so being a young, attractive, um, somewhat innocent woman – with no power, really, mm-hmm. um, puts you in a very uncomfortable place there. And I'm not—I mean, I'm not sure if you want to discuss um, sort of my grossest encounters. Um, well, shoot, let's let's hear it. I mean, let's hear it. It's definitely—I uh, mean, not by your choice, but it, it's kind of something that has become a part of your story, whether you like it or not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, shoot. Um, so, um, without retelling what I've already, um, what I've already shared in the press, I, um, I, I sat down next to Harvey Weinstein at dinner, um, at a, at a party in, um, in the Hollywood Hills when I was very young. And I was so naive that although I had heard his name and I'd certainly heard his reputation, I actually didn't know what the guy looked like, um, because I was not, um, I was not Googling people in the, uh, early 2000s. I, I, you know, I was hearing hearing stories and and all that but it it would never have occurred to me to look this guy up because why would I sit next to him at a you know why would I have to know what he looked like but I did I sat down next to him and um and only mid mid dinner and mid mid conversation where I was being my my charming hilarious self because everybody you meet at, uh, at a Hollywood party could be the the person that helps you find an agent or helps yeah. you get a job and so I was always on you yeah. know like you like you are when you're selling um your talent because that's often where deals are made you know yeah. we always hear that well oh, she was discovered in line at Starbucks and yeah. he, he was washing his car and you know that's the that's the the story that's the Hollywood narrative. And so I was telling jokes and and being funny, and I was certainly out of my gourd at this party. I or, or out of my league, you know. I was, I don't know why I was there. <laughs> I really did not belong in any sort of um, company with this this notorious producer. Um, he was notorious already then. Oh yeah, I'd heard. I had. I mean, he in the early two thousands, he was at his peak. I think he was making um, incredible. Movies and I. I mean, oh, I, you mean like famous? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cause, but he wasn't notorious for being like a sketchy creep yet. Not for being a creep, but for being um, quite a volatile personality. I'd heard um, that he had, uh, you know, thrown things. That he, I mean, he was quite famous for his temper and yes. his behavior before he was um, infamous. Yeah, but for so his... was Tarantino. But Tarantino didn't have a reputation for being mm-hmm. a creep. Yeah, I mean, he was like a cokehead and a. Kind of volatile guy who would throw stuff. I mean, I remember him in Jello Bar throwing a bunch of shit around. But like, uh, yeah. But he didn't have. So he didn't have like. He didn't have the reputation of being a sketchy guy then. No, I mean, I don't think so. But um, but you know, my story proceeds like all of those stories that you've heard again and again, where he he feigned professional interest and seemed very. Um, very committed to helping me, and I, I, you know, I had, 
I had um, stars in my eyes thinking that I was going to be this this story um, on Entertainment Tonight. You know, she was discovered at a dinner party and now she's starring in da da da, you know, mm-hmm. because that's what you want to believe. And yeah. and he's also... And sometimes it's true. Of course. I mean, there are people, you know, with all the Harvey Weinstein that's been in the news, there have been people, I mean, I'm sure you've heard way more of these stories even than I've heard, who've said, I met him at a dinner party, I met him at a golf course, I met him... You know, at this situation, you know, women, right? Like young women. And and I talked to him and he opened all these doors for me and he was amazing. And he never once hit on me. He never once acted like a, like a, a, a freak. So I think it's totally plausible for you have for you to have come to that conclusion because mm-hmm. it does happen. Sure. And it even happened with Weinstein. Like there were some people that he genuinely did uh, – help out, right? I suppose. Those stories are getting lost, I think, in the in the hundreds of stories of women who have said the opposite, that he, I mean, he, I'm sure he hired women, obviously, he hired women along the way, but his, his, um, his predatory behavior and his, his, um, what do you call it, his repetitive sort of pursuit and manipulation of people just sort of out weighs any actual good he did for actors along the way. Oh, no, that, that so, wasn't my point. That wasn't yeah. my point. My point was, like, <clears throat> I remember when all the priest scandals were coming out. Yeah. And some priests in Verdun, where I grew up, like, were were mentioned, right? Yeah. And there were <clears throat> older guys that I knew, that were friends of mine, that said, uh, uh, you know, one in particular I'm thinking of, he was just crying. And he said, I actually was mentored by that priest. Yeah. And he actually really helped me out mm-hmm. when I was in like a difficult time and was really kind of a father figure to me. And because of that, never once like, you know, was sketchy with him at all. And he goes, because of that, I vouched for him. Yeah. On numerous occasions. I told like some of my younger friends who were going through rough times, oh yeah, go see you know, father so-and-so. He'll help you out. And he, like, fucking raped them and, oh. like, hurt them. And he goes, I feel so horrible. Yeah. And he was even at one point, to, it gets even worse, he was even at one point contacted by the bishop because the priest said, oh, these these boys are lying. And he said, uh, I can give you a number of people you can contact who will vouch for my character, yeah. including this friend of mine. So the bishop contacted him and he said, oh, he's always been... Wonderful. Uh, I don't. He think... told his truth. That's all. And, and can do, he right? like. And so I think the fact that these people sometimes, occasionally, do help people out mm-hmm. actually makes them even more vicious and insidious mm-hmm. because they're kind of setting up a, a situation where it makes it more plausible for for a young kind of aspiring actor to believe that mm-hmm. this could happen. Absolutely. It's like it's almost worse. Yeah. You know, like it's Well, sad. I mean, nobody's all bad, right? And uh, you know, I'd heard that he was volatile and I'd heard that he what you know, I'd heard that he had this temper and this and that. And and obviously I'm I mean, I wasn't an idiot. I was a young woman and he was an older man and I mean, I had I had been hit on before. I wasn't like what could possibly happen, but I mean, at that point, he he was interested in me professionally. We were in a public place. 
And I had every reason to believe that he said, we're going to set something up. I'm going to be able to help you out. I think you're going to do very well here. You know, he did. He wasn't drunk. He didn't say it with his arm around me. I, I had every reason to to take the shot, to, to take a chance on this on this producer, because what's the alternative? Say no thanks because he's a man. I mean, like, really, wh- why would why wouldn't I believe at that point? And then I, you know, I'm also I'm not, you know, I'm not a delicate flower. If ever somebody was to step out of line, I mean, I was I was going to proceed with caution. I was going to be smart like I always was. And so when he said, oh, just give me a ride or, oh, we'll have a meeting. And then, you know, like like with many of these other women, his his female assistant, his young female assistant calls me to say, oh, I'm sorry, Harvey is in a bit of a rush. Could you meet him in the hotel instead? You know, I. I had already gone far enough in believing that he was going to help me that that I had really no reason to question him until he crossed the line. And then the thing is, is once you are a young girl and the door closes behind you and this older, powerful man who can make or break your career crosses that line, then you're stuck with this responsibility of what to do with it. You know, so it's his it's his bad behavior, but then you are you are saddled with, you know, what do I do now? So it, it is really a shitty abuse of power. And, you know, whether he had been physically uh, abusive and, and hit me in the face <laughs> or, or, or been um, sexually abusive and, and come on to me in, in a very aggressive way, it's kind of the same result. It's like now I have this information and what am I going to do with it? And um, – it really, really, it really took the wind out of my sails about that city and about my career. And and although I, I kept at it, I think something broke in my process. Like I really think I pulled my punches for a long time because I was afraid. I was afraid to run into him. I was afraid to succeed because I knew that being the best in my industry would mean he was going to be there inevitably. You know, like when you looked at the award shows, when you looked at the events, he was always there. I mean, that's why there's so many jokes about him. That's why um, hosts would often refer to him because he was in the front row of of everything. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it, it, it was tricky for a long time to be a woman in Harvey's Hollywood, you know, because mm-hmm. if you didn't, if you hadn't encountered him, then you would. And from what I understand with all these women is that there was this, this unspoken, uh, understanding that he was a creep and that you had to be careful and yet how could you be careful if he was going to be at you know at the head of this the gatekeeper you know he, for I, all these great yeah, projects i mean he yeah. had incredible power and he got a lot of people their jobs and so there's a lot of people that still have the, their jobs because of him so you know there's a lot of doors that will not be opened for me there but at the same time um yeah know, that was one of the that was one of the kind of sickest and saddest things with all these revelations is finding out the way in which he like cock blocked like so many people their careers like yeah. basically put the put the message out like yeah you don't want to work with this person yeah, she's difficult she shows up oh oh even worse than that i heard some of the stories i heard he would like contact people and say she's got a real coke problem mm-hmm. she shows up drunk and hungover yeah. she doesn't learn her lines like you know, not just difficult, like mm-hmm. actually like lying about people. Oh yeah. In a way that 
to make sure they're not going to get any parts. Yeah. Like that's yeah. cold. It is. Yeah. It's it's very very sneaky and he's a very powerful person and I think I think it's really hard to understand the scope of his power unless you understand how how small Hollywood really is in some ways that um you know there there is a sort of a concentration of power and talent and there's a lot of People know each other. People talk, and the agents um, know know who's making movies and who's who's got power. And the producers know who to go to for money, and 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 the actors know each other and run into each other. And I, I mean, it, it's not it wasn't an exaggeration when he talked about the careers that he could make and the rear, the careers that he can break. Like that, he he had um, he had a lot of power over there. And I think he still does in some ways, which is pretty disturbing. How? I think there's a lot of people that haven't said anything um, because it won't serve them or because it'll get them into trouble or because they just want to keep their hands clean. They don't want to have anything to do with it. It's messy. It's ugly. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, a lot of good people didn't know what to do because, you know, who, who am I? Like, what, what am I going to do? Um, then he's going to come after me, you know? And, uh, you know, that's... That's why a lot of people didn't want to say anything, I'm sure, and that's why a lot of people continue to say nothing because um, it's messy. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of it too. Like my wife and I have been like, Annalise and I have been on this like big down like a rabbit hole. We've been like obsessed with Jeffrey Epstein, right? Yeah, and like we've been listening to all these podcasts about him and like just reading all the stuff about him and like a common thread that I see with Bill Cosby. Jeffrey Epstein and with Harvey Weinstein is that they the three of them are like really evil in the sense that they were very good at implicating other people in their evil. So <clears throat> I think part of the reason that a lot of people don't want to talk is because they were very good at like, you know, getting it's almost like I know this is like a little bit of a hyperbolic comparison, but you know, I told you I've been obsessed with this Tony Jett book post-war. But one of the things he talks about that was really ugly about kind of the concentration camp system and then the kind of the the communist system of like it, kind of reporting on your own family and friends and the Stasi and things like that is that one thing that was really evil about these systems is they, they implicated people in the horrible things they were doing. So you ended up kind of participating in the running of a secret service or a concentration camp. So then afterwards, people didn't want to talk about it because they had been helping out, right? And Jeffrey Epstein was very good at like getting people to help him out in procuring these these young girls. And Bill Cosby was very good at getting all of his assistants to be in on getting these women that he would drug and rape and stuff like that. And Harvey Weinstein seems to have been playing a very similar game where like, I mean, that crazy, that the one, um, the the Netflix documentary that you participated in. Untouchable. Yeah, Untouchable. Like, we watched that like twice. And one thing that's just crazy is to see that you have Miramax Studios is spending a significant portion of their budget on covering for him. Mm -hmm. You know, paying off people, uh, hiring Israeli like sort of security service to go and like smear people that talk against mm-hmm. him, like paying lawyers, like, and by doing that, he's getting all these people to be implicated in his in his crimes. Yeah, which is 
dark. It's really it's, it's really dark. And I do actually think, you know, you, you were saying you'd been hit on before, you sure. know, in L.A. To me, um, you know, an older guy hitting on a younger woman, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not not the the coolest thing in the world. But I think there's something honest about that, right? If you're at a party... And somebody like you know is asking you, "Hey, want to go for coffee? Mm. Want to go out for, to dinner or something like that?" Yeah, you might think it's a little bit gross because he's like your dad's age, uh, but like, but it, to me, that's like fair game. And you can just say, "No, I'm not interested." What Harvey Weinstein did was so was manipulative. Very yeah. It's not in the same category. As no, that. not at all. Because it's he doesn't have his arm around you when he asks you that. No. He just seems like a completely, uh, you know, he's a producer. He's he was just very professional. Yeah, and and that's and that's also, sneaky, and also friendly in a not not at all creepy way. He wasn't even slightly flirtatious. You know, there, you know, I've I've had friendly flirty conversations with people before that were fun but innocent. But you know, we were we were joking. We were we were yeah. flirting. It was it there was a vibe because of our because of our male and femaleness or yeah. whatever it was. And there's an honesty to that. There was an honesty yeah. to that. And clear limits because Absolutely. of the honesty. But yeah. but that's not what he was doing. Yeah. When he talked to me, it was like a mentor. It was like an uncle. It was like a, you know what, kid? I think you're going to make it, and I'm going to give you a hand. And, and he, I mean, he was so careful. He appealed to my Jewish heritage. He talked about being from a small town. Um, he asked me about my family. Um, it was very, so very sneaky. sneaky. Oh, it was. He did so everything. Sneaky. He did everything right to make it seem like he was going to be the nice guy he was pretending to be. And and so although I was savvy and I knew that I was going to face, you know, these sort of challenges when somebody comes on to you and you're not interested or you're at a party and someone offers you drugs and you're supposed to say no. I mean, I I'd seen the after school specials. I was not I was not an idiot. Yes, I was naive, but I wasn't totally green. Um, you know, I I really thought Foolishly now, it seems so ridiculous now. But at the time, I really believed that he was going to help me out. And, you know, even after he came on to me and I sort of had to nice my way out of it, he he got how did right you, back to business. How did you business. nice your way out of it? Um, I, I said what everybody says, which is, uh, you know, no, I, you know, I have a boyfriend and I know that's not for me. And, uh, you know, and he had, you know, at that point turned into, um, the other Harvey, which was a completely different person with a different tone and a different expression on his face and trying, clearly trying to get away with something that I wasn't willing to give. And, um, and, you know, I thought that I, I, I thought that I made myself clear that first time and that, um, you know, he had given it a shot and I had I had been clear about where I was not willing to go and that we would now get down to business. Except now I had this secret of his. And so we I was complicit in this thing that had happened, um, him coming on to me very aggressively and inappropriately. And now it was like, oh, well, this this has happened between us. So we're going to put it we're going to put it behind us but we're connected by this secret now and and for sure he's going to help me out right Be- because he said he would and now now he knows I'm not going to sleep with him so so now he's just going to help me right and you know it seems so ludicrous that I would even 
that I would even allow him to help me at that point. But I, I so desperately wanted to get back to what what we had talked about in the first place, and I really still thought that that was going to be his intention, and that and that him hitting on me was just like a little side detour, like oh well, he's a he's kind of a gross old man, and he tried to do this, but but really the reason he was interested in me was for my talent, and he's going to help me now, and you know anybody in their right mind would have run in the other direction, but. In his hitting on me, he had also told me about these careers he'd made, and he had told me about the blacklist. This famous, you know, well, you don't, you you don't want to know what happened to this person. You know, they 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 didn't they didn't work well with me, and now they don't work at all. And so he he said that straight out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he said that, God. but in a different way. I can't remember exactly what he said. I wish I. But could. in a way that communicated but, oh, yeah. that to you. He was very very subtle, but to the point that that he had made careers and he had finished people for not behaving the right way in his presence. And so with with only a few words, he was able to show me his – he was flexing. Like he, he was showing me his reach and his power and he let me know that he was – in charge of that town and and also that everyone does it that was a line that that many many of us heard um that's actually that's actually i think uh like really not true like somebody i kidding. i can't remember what i can't remember what show it was but they were asking about the whole harvey weinstein thing to quentin tarantino mm. and he's just <laughs> hilarious and tarantino was like no 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 you know the way he talks he's like no no, no that's not true and uh and uh, he said, he said, well, they, you know, there's lots of sleaze balls in Hollywood for sure, lots of sleaze balls in L.A. But he said, there's there's a difference between he goes, I didn't even know, you know, I'm a guy and I worked with Harvey Weinstein. I didn't even know he was a sleaze ball. Right? He said, you know why? He goes, here's the difference. He said, there's older guys that are always like hitting on young act- actresses, but they they wear it on, they wear their sleeves on their. Th- on their sleeve. Mm. So it's easy for them to like detect it because how did he put He's like, because they're talking to the woman and they're like staring at her boobs. And they're, so they're kind of, they're like putting it out there that I'm like that. And that is, gives, such a colorful character. He said, it's like a poisonous snake being colorful. Yeah. <laughs> he said, it you like, can see it coming. You can see it. And so you can decide like to, uh, you can decide to say, like, no, I'm not interested, right? But they do that at the dinner party, mm-hmm. right? They do that at the club, at the bar, mm-hmm. at the – so it's just like a fair warning. Yeah. Like, and if you go and hang out with them, um, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not going to blame victims. But if you if you go and hang out with them – you're not very you're not very smart like that that was clearly come on right he goes but Harvey Weinstein was so sneaky like he said he would like never look at he would never like exactly what you're saying like he would not in any way flirt or like look at somebody in an objectify like check out their ass or something he would never do any of that nope and he's like that's really really sneaky mm-hmm. like that's like that's somebody who has like an mo who has a strategy who's practiced mm-hmm. their their con yeah it's like con artist right mm-hmm. and uh and he said there's a difference between a a kind of sleazy old guy mm-hmm. who's hitting on people that could be his 
daughter and a con artist. Absolutely. And he's like, I really think we need to draw the distinction between them because, you know, Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein, uh, they were con artists. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like they would, Bill Cosby apparently did the same thing. He would pretend to be like a mentor, would be a total father figure. He would never flirt. He would never check out your boobs. He would never like, you know, objectify you in any way. And so you would totally think. You're dealing with Dr. Huxtable. Yeah, that yeah. you're dealing with a mentor, with a with a father figure, mm-hmm. and then you're not. Yeah, and then the door closes. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a total Jekyll and Hyde situation. It was, it, I, if I could, in my in my memory, if I could photograph the the public, Mr. Weinstein talking business at a dinner table, and the Mr. Weinstein in a bathrobe when his assistant opens the door to a hotel suite which is an office with computers and you know business is done here but then she leaves and it's not business anymore it that there were which means she's in on it absolutely yeah. and and that is that is a sneaky cover too because the assistants that i dealt with were young beautiful uh single women so you know this attractive assistant well she's safe if she's working for him, he can't he can't be dangerous. So I guess I can meet in here. I mean, this isn't the way things are usually done, but I mean, he doesn't live in Los Angeles. He doesn't have an office here. Of course, of course he does his meetings in a hotel. Right? I mean, there there was a certain logic to that stuff. It wasn't I wasn't just flying into these things with no clue. Well, he's in New York. His offices are in Soho. He's 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 in Los Angeles for award season, which happens to be pilot season. That's why he's here. It's logical. Yes, we'll meet in the in the office in his hotel. You know, there there was a certain there was a certain it it made sense to me, even yeah. if it felt no. It seems foolish. like a totally it seems like a totally honest. You know, I I never I always say you know I I would never like blame victims, mm-hmm. but you know, in the same way that we distinguish between. Uh, third degree manslaughter and first degree murder sure. right there's degrees of like guilt mm-hmm. right i think in the same way i know this is really politically incorrect to say there are degrees of responsibility for something bad happening yeah and i think if you're dealing with the kind of people that tarantino was, was joking about uh somebody who just wears their sleeves on their shirt sleeve and like is, the colorful snake yeah. yeah, if they're like, if you go home with them, um, you don't deserve to be that raped. That person, that person is one hundred percent like guilty for anything that happens, and yes. they are criminally culpable. Yes, but we might say that you're like in the third degree manslaughter. Like, come on, you, you can should, see it coming. You should have seen that way. coming. What Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby no. did is on the <laughs> other end of culp- is like first degree murder. Like, yeah, of it's course. like a very smart. Streetwise, street smart person mm-hmm. could have easily. I mean, you look at like uh, the. You look at sort of the the list of of people that Bill Cosby tricked. There's a lot of really really smart, mm-hmm. intelligent women on that list. The people that Harvey Weinstein, a lot of smart, intelligent, streetwise people. Like so, absolutely. These are these are practiced con artists mm-hmm. who've been like perfecting. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, you could see, I mean, he was doing this back in Buffalo, New York when he was a promoter. Absolutely. Yeah, the, so the women he's like, in this. He's perfected his technique mm-hmm. 
for decades. And they weren't all 19-year-old um, actresses from a small town. They're, no. you know, uh, you know, um, uh, Ashley Judd, you know, Hollywood family. She 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 already had a career. Um, you, you think of Salma Hayek, you know, she's an international star. She was she was producing her own movie, but he was he was producing on top of that. He was the money behind the movie, I suppose. And so you know, even women who had an audience, who had who had a team, who had fame and, and who had money, they, you know, and I thought of, of this at the time is he had, um, I think he had just gotten Gwyneth Paltrow this Oscar or, or his movie had gotten the, her the Oscar for um, Shakespeare in Love. Um, and so uh, after after one of my meetings with, with him that was... Um, uncomfortable. I remember thinking... Canadian understatement. Yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe it wasn't... Maybe it wasn't Gwyneth Powell. Anyway, one of, one of these very famous actors, I remember he had worked with recently, and, and, he, and he referred to her by her first name. And I'm not sure if he said Gwyneth or Uma or something, but he, re, he, he referred to one of these very famous women who had, who had won awards by, by her first name, and and claimed that that she had you know done this massage thing in the hotel and it wasn't a big deal, and I thought I thought to myself afterwards and later way later, you know if she had been treated this way and didn't mind, well maybe I don't belong here. You know maybe I don't belong in Hollywood, and if she had been treated in this way and did mind, and she couldn't do anything about it then who the hell am I? You know, how would I ever get any result if I told anyone? And so I really decided a very long time ago I was never going to talk about this because I really saw no outcome for me. I, though, You know, if, if, if famous and powerful women had been disrespected by this man and, couldn't, and, and had never gotten any results and he was, and he was still, you know, pursuing people and, and acting in this way – well then, I, you know, I was certainly not going to have the power to do anything. I didn't have money for a lawyer. I, you know, I, I wasn't going to go to the police in Los Angeles. What, you know, what was I? I wasn't even supposed to be in Los Angeles. I didn't have working papers. You know, so if if they couldn't get anything done, how could I? And if it was indeed a transactional thing where all of these Hollywood actresses were just giving it up because sex doesn't matter, well, then I was too Canadian and prudish to fit in, <laughs> and I wasn't going to survive in that business. And you know, I really wondered which was it. You know, was it that I I I didn't know for a long time. Like, was I just too prudish? And and sex isn't a big deal. And being free with your body is just something you do when you're an artist. Like, maybe I'm not a good enough artist. You know, I, I really didn't know what to believe for a long time. Yeah. And it messed with me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know, you know, not to the same extent that you're talking about, but I know how you can get in these situations. And even, even in small ways, you can get in these situations where you're so implicated and behavior that in retrospect seems like, really inappropriate and really fucked up like you get in those situations and it, people sort of try and normalize it like and yeah, you survive. I mean even even in a small way even in a small way uh, I had an awkward situation we had a like Phil podcast party uh, a couple months ago and I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies by talking about this but like we had a party and like a, a very old friend of mine who is like a, you know very Get Montreal, Bon Vivant, stuff like that, and like 
he was he was like grabbing the ass of the sound producer's girlfriend and being like really kind of and this is a guy who's I'm I'm 45 this guy's older than me significantly and she's like you know in her early 20s and uh, and he told me about it and I I was just completely disgusted and shocked but also I didn't know how to and even then you know, I like to think of myself as like a decent person. I found myself, my my knee jerk reaction was to was to try and normalize it, and I was like, ah, oh, well, that's just it's what an he's age like. thing. He, that's it's just different generation. He's just he's like that's what we all do. Because... And I and I and then I like I'm saying this to to him, to Eric, and then I'm like, fuck, am I saying like this is like, I'm hearing it coming out of my mouth. And I'm thinking, you sound like such a fucking asshole, John. Like, what are you doing? And so then I was like, no, no, that's not okay. And I, I actually went and said something to him, the the guy. And uh, and he was like, ah, so uptight. It's no big deal. I was just having fun. What's the, you know? What's the problem and everything? And like, uh, and then we have we haven't talked since. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it is this weird, weird when you have like a a, a small kind of insular community. And you have one person who's behaving in a really uh, inappropriate way. Mm-hmm. There is this weird n- kind of knee-jerk human response to try and explain it away. Mm-hmm. Or joke it and away. Joke that's about Canadian. it. Normal- <laughs> yeah, normalize it somehow. Yeah. And that's so horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean look, I, at, I, look at the many, many jokes that have been told about this Harvey Weinstein story before it became a story. You know, it was a joke on 30 Rock. I can't believe I'm referencing 30 Rock again. Mm. But, I mean, you know, uh, Jenna's character makes a joke about it, um, uh, about about exactly this. And it was before any of these stories had come out. And... um, there's a there's a clip of of Courtney Love saying something about it on the red carpet. There, I mean, and there have been there have been jokes in other shows about him and his character and being a, a you know, being a creep. And so there, you know, there is this tendency to sort of explain away this bad behavior, and it's and it's often men's bad behavior because when women behave badly, they're taken down pretty fast. Right. Uh, but but I think that we've all sort of no- normalized or ex- or, you know, survived th- this 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 habit of th- the microaggressions that occur along the way so that when something bigger happens, we don't really know what where is the line where we're supposed to say something or where we're supposed to stop laughing it off and where we're supposed to s- you know, stop making excuses. And, you know, by the time an attractive young woman becomes a young woman, she is she has faced these things over and over and over again, from a whistle on the street to an uncle saying, oh, you've got bedroom eyes or, oh, watch out, the boys are going to come knocking at Seriously? the door. Oh, yeah, absolutely. An uncle? Uh, n- not an uncle, but, for, <laughs> you know, for, for example. Mm. Uh, but, you know, the, these things happen bit by bit, along the way and you get used to it you know you get used to being um to being treated like you're you're this person whose body is up for conversation and can be touched without permission and 
you 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 get used to it and you and you normalize it to survive i think and i think that this conversation is a really important one because it i think it represents the beginning of the end for that i don't think it should be okay for people to put their arm around the waist of their waitress just because she's a woman i don't think that i don't think there should be such a high cost to going through the world in this meat spaceship because you're <laughs> Because you're an attractive female. Like, that shouldn't be a liability. You yeah, know? I, I brought this up to a former guest. That, well, she's a somebody that I have a huge amount of respect for. She's amazing. Babette Babbage. She's a philosopher. Uh, she lives in New York City. It's a great and name. She, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty badass name. Uh, but I, I remember when she was on the podcast the last time, uh, I asked her about the whole, like, Harvey Weinstein thing. And about all this stuff. And her response was, uh, she was very, very sympathetic to the, the sort of victims and the people who had, like, had been, you know, fucked up by him and everything. But she also had, she said, you know, there's something deeply hypocritical about this. And she goes, as a cultural critic and as a philosopher, she said, I'm, this smells like a little bit of hypocrisy to me. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She goes, all of Hollywood. You know, most of the entertainment industry is based on, like, the objectification of young women. That's, like, that's their their business model. And so for people to be surprised that that this is happening and act like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. Mm. She said, like, there's something that doesn't sit right with me mm-hmm. there and she goes you know it's what was the comparison she used she said you know it's like if you wear if you walk around like with like just like a bikini top on like and you're like you know all stuff and then you're talking to somebody and they like happen to glance down and you're like i can't believe you looked it's like oh come on like seriously yeah seriously she goes, I'm a straight woman, and if I'm talking to a woman who is really beautiful and she's that scantily clad, I'm going to look down and take a look. Like, it's just, it's so beautiful and eye-catching. And, like, mm-hmm. so she said, Hollywood suddenly having these, like, really moralistic, like, <gasps> we're so shocked about all of this. She said, there's something that doesn't sit right with me on that. It's like, this is your business model, bitches. Like, why are you suddenly, like, acting like you're surprised that this is happening? Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? I think the surprising thing is that we're talking about the abuse, like, that goes on behind the scenes. I think beautiful and eye-catching, that that is what Hollywood is all about. Nobody's pretending that it's a moral... Um, exploration of the human condition because beautiful and eye-catching is what gets people to theaters. It's what makes people want to watch. And then with the beauty and eye-catching, with the – with the, um, I was, was going to quote an old actor, but with, with the, the young actors, whoever they are, that are beautiful and eye-catching, then they can discuss the human condition and they can tell the story of – of of morality if they want to because people are watching because they're beautiful and you know that's beauty is never going to get old in hollywood i think what's shocking is that we are talking about those people like harvey weinstein who have taken their power 
and and abused it in a business that attracts that kind of beauty. Um, but I mean, I think in in the world of medicine, a similar abuse of power would be equally inappropriate. It's just that maybe people aren't attractive to, attracted to medicine because you know it's a beautiful and eye catching <laughs> business. It's gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know. I, I I don't I don't think anybody is surprised that it's gone on the casting couch. I mean, there's a there's a there's a monument that is a couch in Los Angeles. It's you know this is a tale as old as the business business I did itself. Know about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's horrible. Um, that's, uh... But the difference is that most, if not all, people who are drawn to this work are drawn to storytelling and are drawn to. Um, to you know, to, yes, absolutely. I became an actor because I love being the butt of the joke. I love to have attention at a party because I'm telling a great joke, or to be the person that is up on stage doing Shakespeare and I'm I make saving. somebody Total feel something. Total yeah, for you. yeah. Like, like I, I love to be a storyteller, so and I, so. and you know, I want, yeah. I wanted to do that from yeah. a very young age. Um, and I, and because I was never shy, I could do it. And I loved the sound of silence in a theater and I loved the sound of applause. And, you know, that was all for me. And I was just lucky to be attractive as well. And so I, I it made it a little easier to get the job. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that, 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 that wanting to do that and wanting to be a part of that storytelling business should mean that I have to surrender my dignity yeah. or that, or that I have to deal with um, being taken advantage of or manipulated in any way. I mean, I was prepared to be propositioned or hit on or whatever, you know. But in an honest way. But in an honest yeah, way. Yeah. And that, that's the thing for me. It's and like, most importantly, I hate it when the telemarketer, you know, gets on the phone or the Jehovah's Witness at my door, like, and they say, hi, how are you? And <laughs> like, they act like they care about what's going on with me. You don't care about, you don't know me, you don't care about me. Mm-hmm. You just want to sell me something. You know, or you just want to like, like, I always tell my students, I'm like, especially my, my, my strong students, I say like, at some point in the future, you're going to need a letter of recommendation. When you want a letter, that, that I consider that part of my, my commitment to you and my care for you and mentorship of you, you've done well, that's part of my job. So when you want, I write, you know, hundreds of letters of recommendation a year. So when you want a letter of recommendation... Uh, when you contact me, whether by email or like on a phone conversation, put it in the subject. Yeah, right away when you're talking, say the first thing. Say, "Hey, John, how you doing? Uh, I need a letter recommendation for McGill. Is that cool? Can you write that?" Like, and then after that, you know, we can have small talk and say, "Like, hey, how are your sons doing? How's your wife doing?" Don't put it in the postscript. Yeah, don't like don't <laughs> talk to me for a bunch. Of stuff, and then ask me yeah. at the end, you know, like don't don't come and talk to me in my office, and we're talking for half an hour, and I think we're just like catching up, and then I say then I, I actually have to I have to get back to grading, or mm-hmm. I have a class in ten minutes, and you're like, oh, by the way, it's not can a by I? The way. No, absolutely. That's why you came. Yeah, and it's fine. That's completely fine for you to just say that. It's part of my job. It's totally. I understand, and. That's what really bugs me about the Cosby and the Weinstein stories is the 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 trickiness and mm-hmm. the the duplicitousness. It's mm-hmm. like I have I I don't believe that you know in you know this whole you know 
George Bush thing. We should be colorblind. I don't think I think we should actually see difference and acknowledge it. I I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing race, seeing difference, seeing a person's beauty and seeing things that are about the I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that. Um as long as it's like acknowledged and it's it's honest, mm-hmm. right? I it's the trickiness that's like Yeah. that's really really that makes what they did. Well, it would have been a very different conversation if he had said uh, you know what, Eric? I, I think you're really funny, and uh, you're a beautiful girl. I think you're going to do well in this business, um, and I'd love to have dinner with you. Or, you know, if he had tried to put his arm around you me, you never would have went to that hotel room if he had done not. that. Of course not. Because you would have known if he had tried he's to. He's a colorful, poisonous snake. Yes. I should only and see him he, in public. You know, if he hadn't have been wearing the colors and he had tried to put his arm around me, and then I had said, "Oh no, sorry, that's not for me," and he had gone, "Oh, my bad." Pardon me, I picked up on the wrong signal or, uh, you know, I, well, a guy's got to ask or, you know, I sorry, I've had too much to All drink. All would have been fair I mean, game. yeah, that's a different conversation. That is a, a, a uh, you know, it's a misunderstanding or it's a lack of communication or, or whatever. I mean, whatever it is, yeah. it's, a, it's a correction, of course, when, when a woman says, oh, no, I'm sorry that we, we've misunderstood each other yeah. or no, that's not for me or I have a boyfriend or it. You know, any signal that anything but enthusiastic consent is a no. And that is something that I think men everywhere need to get. And and something that most of the men that I know and most of the good men that I've worked with cannot – they can't get their head around this because it's incredibly disturbing to them, including my husband, that anything other than enthusiastic consent at every juncture is not, is not a turn-on. You know, it should not be attractive to have a woman pull away or freeze or cry. I mean, the 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 the, the lengths that these men and in particular Harvey Weinstein, who I have experience with, the the lengths they went to get what they wanted at the expense of the women that they harmed is pathological. It's it's yeah. it's criminal. And that's why, I mean, it's it's incredibly important that we're talking about this now and that he is facing criminal charges because it is a crime to invade a person in that way. I mean – Yeah, I, I, I like your distinction a lot because it, it rings true to me on so many levels. But it just you, – you made me like remember something that I'd, I'd forgotten about and uh, it was uh, – I, I remember when I was in undergrad, I got hit on by one of my profs once, and I was like, you know, really, really kind of, I admired this guy a great deal, and I really kind of, he had, you know, I guess to some extent he had a certain amount of power over me and stuff like that. I mean, kind of. I mean, uh, he was a mentor of mine, and, uh, you know, we we were like out, and we were talking, hanging out, and stuff like that, and like, and he just put it out there. Uh, that he was that he was interested, kind of put his hand over mine, like on the table and everything, and I was like, "Nah, I'm not, I'm not interested." Uh, but he was just like, "All right, no problem." Uh, he was totally cool about it. gay guys are different. Uh, oh well, I guess like some of them, not Kevin Spacey, but uh, but like they, he was like just totally, totally cool about it, and it was exactly like you said. It was it was a course correction. And he just, uh, that was the end of it. That was the end of it. And there were zero consequences. We remain friends to this day. It was just like, hey, just putting it out there. 
not interested. Yeah. End of story. Yes. That was it. End of story. A human, it was like, mutually respectable It was a completely normal, interaction. fine. Uh, it was no, like, nobody did anything wrong. No. Um, and uh, and that was the end of it. And it was totally fine. Mm-hmm. Right? But then, you know, you hear about these these people who kind of set up a situation and are not honest. I mean, after that happened, uh, probably, <laughs> like, it's different if it's between two guys, for sure. Um, but, you know, definitely for a couple, you know, for a month or two after that situation, if he had said, hey, you want to come to a hotel room? I would have been like, no, because... I know there's interest there and I don't want to put out the wrong message by showing up to a hotel room, right? But with Harvey Weinstein, he wasn't doing that. He was not, like, making any kind of intentions clear. He was just doing a con job. A very, very well-rehearsed and yes. well-supported con job, you know, because he had he – had, um, he had assistants and secretaries and and casting people who were pulling strings to make it it was i mean it, it must have been all theater because i never worked for the guy i was never hired i you know i never i never had any sort of professional dealing with him but i mean he he had an assistant a contact me to say that he wanted me to fly down and meet with casting in New York. He had a different assistant book my flight. He had another assistant meet me at an office. Have there been any consequences for any? Because Jeffrey Epstein's assistant, what's her name? The the British, like, uh, whatever, like, she's on the, she's on the lam uh-huh. right now. Yeah. She's in hiding. Uh-huh. They have no idea. There are warrants for her arrest. Right. Nobody knows where she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, have there been any, has there been any consequences for... Weinstein's like crew? Not that I'm aware of. And I think part of the problem is that, you know, a lot of a lot of those, you know, since he's been doing this for a very long time, an assistant he had in the early 2000s now has a well-paying position at a studio. Right. Because they were Harvey's assistant when they were young and they learned to produce and then they got an, a PA job and then they worked their way up. And now they have a good job, you know. So like his his former lackeys, I'm sure, paid a, a, a miserable price for working for him in many different ways. But because they ended up with a job eventually, they, you know, they they aren't saying anything because they have a good job, which they are likely going to lose if they come forward and say, oh, yeah, that was me that opened the, the door. Or, yeah, that was me that contacted you. And, you know, I, I met a woman when I flew down to New York for casting. I, I met with a woman and I had no plans to see him i you know i was i was being flown down by his people and flown home and i was meeting with a woman so that you know that's a lot of people making arrangements for young erica rosenbaum on behalf of his lecherous intent mm-hmm. you know like that that's that's a lot of effort to go to for a con yeah so the, the so that's part of the reason why i didn't believe it because who the hell am i like, why would this producer go to all of this effort just to try to get into my pants? Like, it didn't make any sense. So, of course, he's interested in me as an actor. He, he, said, he said I was going to be the next Sandra Bullock because I was really funny, but I had gravitas. And I was like, that's actually, yeah. That's actually... Bang like, on! Yeah. I was like, yes, I'm going to be the next oh, Sandra Bullock. that's really creepy. And I actually, believed it. Okay, you guys can't see her, but that actually is Erica. Thank you. <laughs> like, that's hilarious. It, without the Oscar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you seen the movie Swimming with Sharks? No. <gasps> oh, my God. 
after the whole Harvey Weinstein thing came out, I immediately thought of that movie. It was a Kevin Spacey movie, and he plays a Hollywood producer who's unbelievably abusive and uh, very sexually predatory. And one of the ways in which he works his con is he has, like, Benicio Del Toro is in it, um, and he plays, like... And so there's this young guy, I can't remember the actor's name, who is his assistant. And he's unbelievably, like, abusive towards him in, in like, just horrible, horrible ways. Um, but Benicio Del Toro and all these other people who have also been really kind of mistreated by him say to him, just put up with it. He will hook you up with really good jobs in the future. And he will hook you up in this this woman who clearly has been, like, you know, having sex with him just to get, like, jobs and things like that, says to him, like, oh, yeah, you just got to, like, put up with his. And I remember after this all came out, I thought, whoever wrote that script must have had him in mind, or at least him and, and some other people in mind. Because watch the movie. It will blow, also because it's Kevin Spacey, but, but like it will blow your mind. It's so, so similar. And the way in which this the Kevin Kevin Spacey's character, who's a Hollywood producer, the way in which he gets everybody else implicated, it was a it was a kind of an indie movie, but it has lots of very very well known actors in it, and it's extremely well written, and you'll you'll freak out how it turns out, but like it it just shows how this guy gets everybody else in on this on the con, so that nobody wants to bring him down because if they do. They're going to go down with him. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I I see we're running out of time, and yeah. you have to like go. But um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and it this has been really intense. <laughs> uh, but uh, but thank you so much. And do you have any? So what is the? What do you have kind of on the future horizon? I know right now you are like, you know everybody's trying to get inter- interviews with you to talk about because, you know, Mr. Walker man is like, uh, is on trial now and everybody's talking about this. I mean, so, I mean, what do you see sort of on the horizon or what's going on for you right now? Um, I see all good things really, which is nice. Um, because I think that, um, you know, right now I'm watching the case very carefully and I'm trying to um, I'm trying to be a voice here in Canada, you know, because I found that um, my vulnerability comes with great power, and um, in in opening myself up and shedding light on my experience, I have given a lot of people permission to do the same. And um, you know, when I when I was deciding whether or not to share what had happened to me, I I, I you know I had two shitty options. I w- I could either keep it a secret, which I had been doing. And it wasn't really working out for me because I was dealing with a lot of anger and stuff that, you know, I I wasn't at my best, we'll say. Or I could tell everybody and then this would follow me throughout my career. And I would have to explain to my kids someday what had happened and all this horrible stuff. But but in in sharing these nasty experiences, I have, um, I don't know, I've lifted a weight in some way. And and so many people have said to me that, you know, well, I mean, days after sharing my story, this the Me Too movement was sort of revived. Tarana Burke's hashtag Me Too was was revived in in social spaces, and all of a sudden, women all over the world and men 
also were saying, you know, that they had they'd faced similar experiences. And that made me feel um, both frustrated and also way less alone. And 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 it made me feel really brave and like, well, because the the person who treated me poorly is very famous that sort of gives me an opportunity to talk about it. And so, I, you know, I've spoken to students at your at your CJEP. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I'm, you know, I, I speak for free and I speak whenever I'm invited, if I can, so that I can have a conversation, share my experience and be honest about um, these things that happened to me so that others can hear it firsthand and understand a little bit of the story from my perspective. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a trauma expert, but I have gotten a little bit of therapy and, I, and I've become a little more trauma-informed. And, and I like talking to people and telling them about my experience so that they can feel a little more empowered to do something in their own life. And, I mean, people from all walks of life have contacted me and from all over the world – um, sharing and, you know, in some cases sharing something that they can't share with their family or that they haven't gone to the police about, but they feel they feel they can tell me because I've told everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, when I feel like I'm helping people a little bit, it makes me feel like I've taken some of that power back and although yeah. something really awful happened to me, um, you know, not only am I now getting getting the help that I need to heal from it, but I'm helping others in sharing it. And so that makes me feel really good. And it makes me feel like I'm turning something bad into something good. And and that, and that I think, is the best that I can do with this situation. Well, that's the weird paradox about this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I, you know, I'll tell you off the air, <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, the, how I relate to that. But like, it, the fear always is, I don't want to talk about this because I don't want to be defined by this. But until you talk about it, you are defined by it. That's the weird paradox. It's like you actually are defined by it when you're being silent, like in terms of your life and your your headspace, right? So there's a weird, it's like, a, you know, the philosopher Nassim Nicholas Taleb, he says, like, some people write things down to remember them. I write things down to forget. Mm-hmm. Like, I write to forget, right? So I write so that I can, it can be gone, mm-hmm. right? So there's a way in which like speaking about something, it actually doesn't end up defining you. Mm-hmm. It ends up allowing you to move past that definition. Yeah. Right. So it's. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, I've been able to take it and, and share it so that it's not just mine anymore. And, um, and it has become a tool for me to make the world a little bit better. And even if it's just in a small way, I mean, my people in my own family have come to, to me about their experiences and, and have gone to the police in some cases. And, I mean, those were secrets that were in our family for um, for a long time that I, you know, that I never knew about. You know, my my um, my own sister shared an experience with me that – and, you know, so it's, it's brought me closer to some people that I love and also – Oh, no, it is really a big deal. I mean, without betraying any, cons- any confidences, I, I got to tell you that you speaking at my college – Two of my students told me that that, like, hearing you speak, like, led them to actually um, tell, you know, their families about something that happened. Oh, wow. And uh, and so, yeah, no, it's not a small way. It's, like, a really big way, actually, because it, it yeah, I mean, because they, so, no, it is actually a really big deal. It's actually after the second student told me that, that's when I contacted you and I was like, yeah, you want to come on the podcast? Because I was like, that's, this is really intense. Like, this is actually, uh, 
Yeah, I know. I'm getting old. <laughs> that's beautiful. But no, yeah, that's, no, that's it's, great uh, to hear. It actually, I'm no, so it pleased. does. It is. It is a big deal. It's not nothing. Thank so. you. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, and, thank you uh, for having me. We'll have to have you on again. Yeah. Okay. I have a movie coming out in 2020. So. Oh, um, what is it? Um, I did a movie called Home. Um, and it's a horror movie with Emily Hampshire and um, um, Francois. Um, I'm going to say his, his last name wrong, so I'm going to say it properly. <laughs> home in 2020? Yeah. Home. What production company? Um, it's with a local production, actually. Hang on. I'm going to find the right thing so that I don't miss it. They changed the name. <laughs> So what is your role in that? Are you like the monster? Are you Jack Nicholson? Or like what are we like? <laughs> I'm the monster. Are you Freddy Krueger? Like what is the, what is the? Uh, well, I don't want to tell you too much about it. Well, because... don't tell me the plot. But just tell me if you're the monster or the victim. I am neither. Not ooh. I am neither. Um, but yeah, so you're not like the blonde chick that gets killed in the first ten minutes, though. I'm right? rarely a blonde chick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, like the uh, in the '80s, like '90s, like in those horror movies where there would always be like the the formula of who gets killed first. That's it's right. Like it's not me. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, uh, on on IMDb it says. Meredith, her husband Jared, and son Alex face unspeakable terror in the wake of a family tragedy. And I don't want to tell you more than that. Arnaud is how you say his last name. Okay. Francois Arnaud. Uh, he was just in the Moody Christmas. Did you see that? No. Jay Baruchel and Francois playing brothers? No. Hilarious. So much good stuff being done in Montreal these days. <laughs> I know there is. But all right. So uh, when that comes out, we will make sure to do a shout out for it. Yeah. And thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having Take me. Take care.